I love getting the opportunity to interview my fellow podcast hosts. Podcast hosts are awesome people, and the podcasting community as a whole is a wonderful, wonderful community filled with uh, incredible people who, for me at least, have shown me a lot of love uh, and kindness and grace, and uh, I'm just so thankful for that. And today's guest on Dr. D's Social Network is Greg Rodesheimer, and Greg is part of that community. I was fortunate enough to be on his podcast, Suburban Folk, a while back, and Greg is just seasoned. He knows his way around an interview, and it's just very easygoing. In today's conversation, we touched on a variety of topics from healthcare, the billing in healthcare, which you'll see I get a little bit fired up about, um, end up talking about podcasting, and much, much more. So draw your attention to Greg Rodesheimer. All right, man. Back in the network, Greg Rodesheimer. How you doing, man? I am doing pretty well with all things going on in 2020, but yeah. considering those things, I can't complain too much. Yeah, man. I think uh, everybody's having similar but different experiences, but uh, I enjoyed being on your podcast a while ago. And one thing I remember, you asked amazing questions, man. Oh, well, I appreciate that. And Actually, when you and I connected again, or I reached out to see if I could jump onto your show, one of the things that I've drawn on my recent experiences was from our conversation talking about friction. And of course, it was in the world of health, but removing points of friction for anything people are trying to achieve. And I've been doing a lot of focus on my financial journey and trying to help other folks and I've actually referenced some of your quotes many times comparing ah. the health journey to the financial journey. I think it's fairly similar on, in many ways. Uh, I just think we we look at health sometimes very different than we look at other aspects of things. But I So tell me, though, what is that your profession in the financial world? Is that what you work in? It's not. I'm actually in healthcare for my day job, like data okay. analytics. I'm on the provider side of things, but oh, yeah. So, but finance has always been a passion of mine in general. And as my financial world is really coming together and has been for the last few years, I've started to put my head out a little bit more and say, what kind of passion projects would I be interested in doing? Of course, the podcast is one of those. And in some podcast seminars, there were recommendations, suggestions of what other services are you offering beyond just a podcast? And at the time, I didn't really think about it. So I started to get more into my own financial journey and feel like it would be very fulfilling to be able to help others get their finances in order and emphasis on not wanting to do investing for people. Cause I've been joking, what kind of a nightmare does that have to be back in March when you're having to answer for everybody when the market tank? Now, of course it's come back up, but I'm not really interested in doing that part, really focusing more on the basics of budgeting and are you saving enough for retirement separate from what you're investing in, but those kinds of things to really hopefully help folks out. So the particular aspect of health, um, how did you get into that? What was your journey to being in this field? Healthcare really was what opportunity came up first out of college. I hate to say that, but that really yeah. is what it came down to. And I kind of joke that you've heard the phrase that 
there's three things that a job can offer. Usually you're only picking two. So they say, do you want something fast? Do you want something good? And do you want something cheap? You can't have all three, right? And I use a similar term sometimes for healthcare, unless you are the physician and that's absolutely your passion and you've been pursuing that your whole life. For other people in different parts of the industry, I feel like your pick three is job satisfaction, uh, job security, and pay really are kind of those three. And and you're going to get two of the three in a similar way. And I've managed to find my niche, which is in the analytics and data part of it. But uh, it, it was definitely a journey to get to that part of the business where I was really picking the other two <laughs> of those yeah. three of mobility uh, in the job and then overall job security, especially again in times like this right now. I'm very happy that that's the industry that I'm in and just building on some of those other skills in the data tech world has uh, found a, a really good niche there. But but yeah, it was really the first thing that I was able to grab out of college and I was just motivated to really learn the corporate world, whether it was in the healthcare industry or otherwise. Uh, and actually for the technical piece, it really came down to, for anybody I think that's in operations will agree, when you need an analyst to create a report or do something else to automate something, it tends to be very hard to get that resource. So I just started doing a lot of it myself. You know, ask, for example, the IT guys, hey, if I take this database and make a copy of it and mess around, is that okay? And usually they would say yes until I would build those skills and build those skills and found also that there's a big gap, especially in the healthcare world between the clinical teams and the technical folks. Mm. And, th and that's actually where I've really found myself is being a liaison between those two worlds. And I say to people, most clinical people didn't go to school to talk about computers. <laughs> and right. on the other end, the IT people understand enhancements to systems or, or report creation, so on and so forth, but they don't necessarily know the industry that they're serving. So actually, I kind of live right in the middle there. Uh, and it's it's been a pretty cool niche. Now, what are your feelings af after being in healthcare about the stat the status of healthcare in our country? I mean, it's a big topic, and I know it seems like you're in a different aspect of it. But generally speaking, what are your feelings about it? I recognize that there's definitely things that need to be improved upon. Actually, I'll jump into a health comparison as far as workout regimens and eating healthy. One of the big talking points right now is in social determinants of health. And for people that don't quite know what that term means, we're talking about food insecurity or do you have enough clothes? Are you afraid that your power is going to be turned off? Things like that that are not health issues directly, but if you are worried about these things, they're going to take your attention away from your overall health. And that's been a really big focus for a lot of companies right now. And the reason I mentioned comparing it to like a gym, I'm not yet convinced that it won't be similar to whether or not somebody uses a gym membership or not. You can 
lead somebody to the food bank or have other programs that they have. Transportation uh, is another good example. But if their motivation is not there before having additional modes, it's yet to be seen whether or not having these well removing friction points will actually increase the health outcomes that are going on. And for the area of the business that I'm in, that's one of the challenges, especially from the data standpoint, that you have to show your value is, did you actually get more people to go to their preventative visits or Mm. take more ownership in their care? Or is it really that the people that use your services would have taken ownership of their care anyway? Uh, and, and and that's hard to prove, right? You're you're trying yeah. to prove that something that you've prevented something from happening. Or, for example, uh, of course, hospital stays are very very expensive. And I definitely also agree when people talk about the U.S. doesn't have healthcare; we have sick care. Or, in other words, we're not really promoting preventative services. Right, more people, reactive care. Ex- exactly, and I definitely think that's true. And for where I sit in the overall system, absolutely admissions and readmissions are a big, big focus for reducing cost. Uh, and, and of course, that also gets into educating people in, in what they need to be able to do. Actually, one quick story, hopefully that I practice what I preach, but I also think that if I wasn't so ingrained in the industry, it's a lot to navigate. Uh, my daughter actually just broke her arm a couple weeks ago and we were actually in a different state. So luckily my wife is a physician. So she's looking to see what we can do other than just go straight to the Mm -hmm. ER. We happened to find like an ortho, like urgent care that uh, had a specialty unit ready to go. Luckily, the break wasn't that bad that what well, we had to wait quite frankly, like overnight to see whether or not she could move it and all that kind of stuff. And she managed to sleep through the night that we had a little bit of time on our hands, but also I was calling the insurance company and seeing what our in, in network and out of network rates were going to be. What can we do to reduce those costs and not just go straight to the ER? So we fared okay. And of course, <laughs> acknowledging that Making sure that my daughter got the care was number one (laughs) before you get into the finances. But um, using the rest of those resources and and understanding what's available to you is not necessarily that easy to navigate. And again, we're two people that deal with it every single day on both ends of being uh, her as a provider and then me in the administrative part of healthcare. So I know that's a generic answer to say that knowledge is – something that definitely can be worked on to make sure people understand what their options are in front of them. But it really is the starting point. Um, And then hopefully from there, people will start to realize, um, again, what their options are. And here's maybe something that I tend to think that it maybe isn't a popular opinion, again, with the same comparison, a little bit more transparency and skin in the game for direct consumers is not such a bad thing. As we're driving to this urgent care, I'm saying to my wife, somewhat jokingly, but it's sad but true, in any other industry, I could be looking on a menu to say, oh, this is what service I'm going to get, and this is how much that service costs. Why does that not happen? (laughs) It's a great- It drives me insane. I actually had this conversation with my wife the other day. 
about my daughter's, some of my daughter's stuff. And I'm like, everything else you do, you know the price of it ahead of time. Why don't you know the price of your medical care ahead of time? You just get hit with a bomb later on. Yeah. That's, that's exactly right. And that makes it so hard to be an informed consumer. Continuing that comparison that we just had, the urgent care for a very similar service, they had to put it in a temporary cast because there still was some swelling. Mm -hmm. That cost was pretty much exactly what the insurance ended up paying as far as the usual and customary. And then when we got back to town for her uh, permanent cast and the hard cast, their bill was way, way higher. Now, of course, a bunch got written off because of how contractual rates work. But of course, the point is, is similarly, there's no other industry that I can think of that you have no idea what that final bill is going to look like. And the different costs from different providers can be such a wide range. And of course, you don't know it until after you get the bill. So th there is definitely some need to have that all tightened up. And that I think would help consumers be more savvy or maybe said a different way. I wouldn't feel so conscientious of recommending that consumers need some skin in the game, understanding that it's very hard for them to when the cost structures are so complicated and not transparent. Yeah. I feel like it's one of the things that drives me crazy because it's, you're like, well, how much was this visit going to cost for this thing? And then you're just like waiting to get something in the mail. And then it's always way more than you think it should be. You're like, wait, why is this this much money? And, you know, my wife, who's also in healthcare, she's a nurse. She's like, I try to call and, and you know, and people, they won't tell you. Or they're like, oh, we have to, the doctor does his own billing or whatever. And it's like this weird secret that is just thrown around. And it's just like, I don't know how the price come, how the price is determined for X, Y, and Z. But it seems like I should know about it ahead of time, at least on some level. Uh, it really nitpicking as well is a lot of the office visit codes are based on the amount of time that the doctor is spending with you. The same uh, experience here. Once we finally got the bill, it was billed that he was doing a 45 minute consultation. He couldn't have been in the room for more than 10 minutes, maybe. They're never <laughs> in there for 45 minutes. That's no. crazy. <laughs> exactly. And it's like this unspoken code that in theory, I could call them up and say, I think you build this wrong and it should be less, yeah. but you don't want to be targeted as that problem patient that <laughs> could upset this unspoken system that's out there. And the other reason it strikes me is there are industries that just bill by the amount of time. Consulting is one of the ones that come up and, mm -hmm. you know, depending on who you ask, some people are for that, some are not. But there's also many other industries that you get paid based on what you produce. So is that something else that should be done? Gets a little bit hard to figure that out because there is definitely certain skills uh, that that come into it. But I don't know that I've ever gotten a bill with the amount of time it suggests the doctor was actually in the room with me and that wow. it was anywhere close to the amount of time, you know? Yeah. I mean, if they say 45 minutes for a doctor, I have a lot of uh, physician colleagues. They'll be the first to tell you they struggle to be in there 10 minutes, five minutes. I mean, it's, 
That's actually crazy. I just think we're getting screwed over, honestly. I think for a lot of people, they're very, any side of the aisle you're on, everybody's frustrated with healthcare and the price of it. And that's, I think, what's so frustrating is you have, if you have healthcare, you're paying a premium or something, and then you're paying more money for it, unless you have, unless you're paying a super high uh, premium, and then you have a very low deductible, but it just feels like very out of whack. I'm like, why am I receiving this bill for something that seems like I was in there for 20 minutes and it's like hundreds of thousands of dollars? It's like thousands of dollars for a very tiny thing, <laughs> you know? Like, it doesn't seem right to me. Yeah, definitely. And I, I will say that I'm guilty of at this point treating my health insurance almost like an investment vehicle and as a matter of fact this is the first time that i've had an hsa available to me Mm -hmm. so that's how my head works i think of it like an ira so i'm going to front load that probably not touch it for what its intended purpose is right now meaning i want to leave it in there for my medicare costs because it can grow tax-free, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, and it's probably a bad thing that I think of it from an investment mindset more though, more so than what I think of it as a vehicle for managing my care so that I'm not sitting in a doctor's office worried about what kind of unknown cost is coming later. Yeah, you know, and the weird thing too is that, you know, you got a lot of people who just they're not in, not weird, but there's a lot of people who are just are not in employer-based healthcare programs. You know, they're in the gig economy, you know, they're working for themselves and it becomes this very weird slope of, you know, what can you actually afford? Uh, what type of care can you get? Like you mentioned it, in-network, out-of-network, like what you did and you called around and looked, you know, about the difference in rates, like I do that stuff. But I don't know a lot of people that would do that. They just go to the hospital. You know, they just show up at the emergency room and they just want it done. And then they're just blindsided afterwards. You know? uh, yeah, absolutely. I think that is definitely the case. Uh, the gig economy is a good point as well. I, I remember when Obamacare first was coming mm-hmm. out and before the details were really fleshed out, I, one of my hopes was that it might be the thing that encouraged some of the older workers to finally retire because they had a bridge between mm-hmm. Medicare and their employer sponsored care. Of course, it turned out that the prices were still a lot uh, and, and didn't really bring those costs down the way I was hoping that it might. And, and again, would sort of detach people from their yeah. employer, but certainly for the gig economy. And I think a lot of people will suggest whatever the quote new normal looks like after we're through the thick of the pandemic probably will have some amount of contract type work, but the healthcare insurance continues to be something that keeps us away from that kind of work and flexibility. So I I would love to see that happen at some point in you know, Obamacare is definitely one that people have different opinions on. Yeah, I don't think anybody likes it. It's one. I I agree. Yeah, either people thought it was an affront to capitalism, I guess, or they felt like it didn't go far enough. <laughs> so, sort of managed to make both sides mad. But hopefully, 
maybe it'll get to some point where it's a step to get it at least away from the employer groups. Um, and I tell people that all the time too, of, Hey, if you're negotiating salary for a new job or something like that, don't forget to look at the benefits because yep. that premium that's listed in there or that lack of a deductible, if you happen to find a company that's paying more into your healthcare really can have a big impact on what your total dollars in dollars out is for your household. Yeah, most definitely. You know, one of the things I remember about the Affordable Care Act when they were doing it, it was essentially looked at as like a first step, you know, in reforming this whole thing. The problem is, is though it's, it's a political thing. So, you know, yeah, that got done because there was a lot of momentum on one side to pass all these things. They had the majority, but the problem is there's always like there's a majority and then one side's Republican, one side's Democrat, and then there's all this gridlock. So you may move one step forward when there's one side on all levels that are trying to do it. But then when you get the opposite, then it's just like nobody agrees on anything. Then all these years go by and nothing happens. And I feel like healthcare is one thing that every person should be concerned about. It's not you know, one thing that this side's for, that side's against. Like, I think most people like, we need to do something about this. I would love to see somebody make it like a real big thing and let's actually get it right. Uh, Definitely. Now, of course, there's a bunch of hands in the process, which makes it super complicated Yeah, where everybody's wanting to get their piece of the pie. Heck, we haven't even talked about the pharmacy companies. <laughs> in oh this. my God. Oh, what <laughs> Which, a nightmare. Yeah, exactly. But you've got these three entities and you could make the argument for any one of them being the bad guys. I mean, we've talked a little bit about the providers that there's not transparency in their cost and they're going to tell you, well, there's not transparency in our cost because of all of the insurance rules and what they're trying to do to manage risk. And when you look at the insurance guys as the bad guys, they're going to say it's the pharmacy guys who are charging these crazy amounts of money for things that our members are saying they need to have. And same thing with the providers. There's all these administrators. And as much as I definitely am for simplifying, streamlining, and yeah, getting everybody together – I also am very aware working in Medicare and Medicaid programs that the more government involvement, it feels like the more complicated things end up getting. So it would need to be very, very methodical to unravel everything. And maybe that's the other problem with the Affordable Care Act is it made an attempt to build upon what was already there, i.e., the phrase, if you like the plan you have, you keep the plan and it goes back to the employer-sponsored uh, plans that we have going on rather than almost talking about a reset button that gets us away from that particular part of it. I'm honestly not sure if we'd have to get all the way to that as far as a, a complete reset or not, but it seems like we're just building on uh, a bad foundation at this point with, with any way that, that you go. Cause every decision, it seems like there's, you know, 20 lobbyists that, that are going to tell you that yeah it, it's bad for them because of all these different reasons. What are, what are your thoughts or feelings about when people compare the U S healthcare system to other countries that may have universal healthcare? 
Actually, that even depends on my perspective. I think from, or when I think of it from the frontline patient standpoint, especially when it's an emergency or something like that, I'm certainly thinking that it has merit. Uh, One of the other perspectives though that I have is using my wife or other physicians as examples and getting into the rigors of med school and student debt. It's funny. I feel like whenever people talk about student debt, they sort of stop at undergrad, but the amount of money for law school and medical school is way more, at least from what I have seen. And you also start building on that. Like people that have basically taken on six figure loans if you're saying to bring the cost down, which I think you probably would have to start to bring down the reimbursement rates. Again, for example, for those in the industry, what you get paid as a provider from a commercial plan compared to what Medicare and even worse, Medicaid pays for the same service. I mean, it's significantly different. So for example, when you hear Medicare for all, what most doctors are hearing there is I'm going to be getting significantly lower rates for my membership. And what is that going to look like for them for their overall cost? And, and, and when you talk about predictability, I think that's where people start to get a little bit out of whack. I, I've talked a lot around COVID of, of boiling everything down to what's predictable and what's not. And that seems like how a lot of things are being disrupted. It's things that are not being predictable, like with schools. I've been focusing on that lately of what are we doing and not to go off on a separate tangent here, but teachers have said, rightfully so, we're not babysitters. And yes, that's true, but there is a certain predictability that school starts at this time and ends at this Mm -hmm. time. I get it that you can probably teach to an individual child what they need to know in a couple of hours, but we've structured everything else around that. (laughs) We have. Yeah. And (laughs) and so bringing that back to healthcare, it's the same kind of thing, right? We've, We've structured so much around our understood system that it gets really, really hard to pick and choose the winners and losers. So I know I just uh, kind of jumped on both sides of the fence okay. there and, and okay, went with a little right. bit of a non-answer. But but uh, I, I and actually even attacking myself a little bit, people like me that are the administrative staff <laughs> that aren't the ones actually giving the care, I think that's something that, that there needs to be a hard, hard look at that. I don't have much insight into, for example, hospital administrators or, or other people that are doing the work there. But if you could simplify billing and get back to one of the original points we were talking about with transparency and cost, hopefully that would mean less staff to figure out the contracts and negotiate these things that that would get rid of some of that overhead, not necessarily affecting the doctors and what their, uh, practice has as far as, uh, income is concerned, but while also bringing the cost down and maybe getting closer to uh, coverage for everybody. So that I think would really be my place to start 
would be there of what can we do to get rid of some of the administrative stuff or, you know, the joke that if lawyers are applauding something that's happening, basically meaning it's really complicated and they want to be able to you know, have litigation, <laughs> then maybe we're going in the wrong direction. It and might I be feel, the bad thing. <laughs> and I, I feel like they're probably licking their chops whenever <laughs> they're, they're, they're seeing some of the craziness in healthcare. That's funny. It's, you know, one of the things I asked that reasons why I asked that question is I live right on the border of Canada. And so I'm regularly see Canadians, not right now because they've closed the border. But before that, um, you would have lots of friends who are coming over from Canada and they're, they're like, what's wrong with your healthcare system? <laughs> I was like, I don't know. That's a complicated question. You know, it's that they have, you know, the whole, they essentially free healthcare. I mean, it's not necessarily the taxes are high, but I think one of the arguments for it is that for for human beings, if you're taking away a stressor, something in their lives that they don't have to worry about, they may be able to have higher order thinking or think about things that are more conceptual. It's kind of the whole concept of people, let's say uh, the topic of climate change, is that if somebody's struggling, they don't have health care, they don't have a, a roof over their head and things, they don't really care about climate change or whatever they think about that, because they're just trying to survive for that. And so I struggle with kind of this thing is, well, what are your, what are you entitled to as a human being, just for being alive, your citizenship of humanity? Should we have things that are basic human necessities so that, that are given to people so that then people can go on and become, they don't have these, these stressors in their life of making, of living on a regular basis they can start thinking of other things. I think it's an interesting conversation to have. Yeah. It definitely is. And maybe one other interesting way to put it though, and I wonder if the American public would be ready for this is care is finite to a certain point. And I'm going to forget the case. It was a year or two ago. It was a British couple that was trying to bring their baby to the US for some sort of treatment that was definitely going to be experimental and probably not a high percentage of working. But depending on the outlet that you read, the British government, at least the way that it was described, would not let them get out and basically seek this particular treatment. Um, the baby did end up dying. Uh, I forget how long after that, but again, for the American perspective of not having to deal with the government quite in that way of life and death. Now we could have a whole discussion, of course, about like capitalism kind of does that anyway. <laughs> it yeah, just doesn't have yeah. the government entity over it. But the reason I bring that up is with COVID right now, Everybody, of course, agrees you don't want any one person to die, suffer for anything. Of course not. Are there actuaries and other people that that's their job is to look at the statistics and figure out probabilities and so on to know what's more dangerous than something else? Yes, there absolutely is. But again, nobody wants to talk about that for fear of sounding callous uh, to say the least. And again, that's completely understandable for sure. But 
just again, using that conversation that's going on right now, presumably if we got to universal healthcare, those conversations would have to be had uh, and would be a debate, I think, for American society of what is the limit of care um, for government-sponsored programs and are we going to be comfortable with whatever those outcomes are? So that's something that I tend to think about and wonder as well. That would be a very, very hard conversation uh, if, if the U.S. ever did really get closer to what Canada or what UK has in place. Do you get a sense, at least um, I know it's, you can't really extrapolate to all people. I mean, nobody knows all people, but just to people in your circle or, you know, your observations or, or conversations with people that people want a different healthcare system that is maybe more like universal healthcare or what have you been hearing that people maybe would like to see? I, it, well, I'm going to go back to what I mentioned before of preventive care. At least that's in my day-to-day conversations. That is really where our focus has been is what can you do to get out ahead of certain conditions and certain diseases that we know have the higher likelihood of costing more money or leading to other issues for somebody's care. So in in my circles, we don't really get much further than that, quite frankly, as far as who should be uh, implementing those other than to say, we are a privately held company and we recognize a need for it, especially in the, we call them the dual eligible members. In, In other words, those would be people that are eligible for Medicare and Medicaid, or also in other words, very, very vulnerable folks that likely have a lot of issues going on. Um, So it really stays kind of at that surface level of what can we be doing for this particular population that we have been assigned that do tend to be high drivers of cost and also for their means have troubles getting to the types of services that they need. Uh, (laughs) I mean, I guess I'm stating the obvious by saying since that's the environment or company that I'm working for, we wouldn't necessarily advocate for um, that to all become a government entity. <laughs> uh, right. But, but um, that I think is is varying opinions as well, right? If, I don't know if, if it's common knowledge when people think of the government running something that in a lot of cases, it's contractors. So, or in other words, yes, the government is collecting the money or paying the money for whatever the service is that they're providing, but nine times out of 10, at least in healthcare, they are then contracting that out to a public private company uh, to actually enact the service itself. And then they're overseeing it to make sure that things are happening the way that they are supposed to. And I've definitely seen other vendors that we work with that do things well. I've seen others that are really, really bad at it. (laughs) And you just say, boy, people wonder where their tax dollars are going. Here's an example. (laughs) Uh, So so at least from my perspective anyway, I I think there's certainly ways to tighten up anything that is a a government service with oversight of the contractors. Um, But 
I do think that the contractors can be more nimble than you know something that's being administered by the government on its own. I mean, I I definitely do joke and say to have everything run uh, by the government without any contractors. I'm like, who who goes into the DMV and says, I want more of this? <laughs> so, no, no one. No <laughs> so, one. People like, avoid it like crazy. <laughs> oh, oh, absolutely. Uh, it, well, or. <laughs> Obviously, very extenuating circumstances, but uh, I happened to turn in my passport right before everything started to get shut down and you call their customer service. So there's like, nope, we're, we're not going to give you a, an update. We're not going to give you any estimated turnaround time. We'll get to you when we get to you. Don't plan on going out of the country anytime soon. <laughs> like what, what other what other company could get away with that <laughs> but the federal government? And to be so rude, like seriously, over the course of my lifetime, anytime I've had to go to the DMV or any social security office, it's like nobody seems happy like that works there. I'm like, this must be the worst work environment ever to be that angry. Or maybe that's just part of the hiring process. Like you must be angry (laughs) (laughs) or you don't care. I'm just like, I remember I got my Nexus pass up here when we first moved to Washington because we're like, we're living like five minutes from the border. It's going to be amazing. And we got it to the trusted traveler office. And I'm telling you, anybody listens to this, maybe your trusted traveler experience was different than mine. But some of the rudest human beings work at that place. Like they're outwardly ugly to you. I'm like, wait a minute. This is crazy. Like, I'm like, who why would you be so rude? I don't know. Those those places, like, if that's indicative indicative of government run things, we want very little to do with that. That's the case. Yeah. And I've had similar experiences. Uh, like, what's it, the point of being so ugly to people? Yeah. I mean, and yeah, unless they started out really happy and just got beaten down by <laughs> equally, equally angry customers. Angry customers, too. That's true. There are people on the other side that are just unreasonable, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I guess it does go both ways a little bit, but you're right. I've had very, very similar experiences in Virginia. They just did the real ID, uh, which oh, is. Oh, no. Yeah. (laughs) Right. So if you don't have it, you have to take your passport to the airport. So I went and got it renewed. And of course that meant you had to go in person. You couldn't do it online. I was in there for like three hours and I actually had to leave the first time after being there an hour or so. And I said, is there any other time to come back? And a very curt, you can check the website, but it's going to be at least two to three hours. And they were right. I I went first thing in the morning the next day and it still took that long to, to get it done. And I didn't get the sense that anybody felt bad for my loss of time. I don't think so. I tell you the best DMV I've ever been to is the one here in Washington. There, and weirdly, I was like, wait a minute. Why are these people happy here at the DMV? And it's also never packed. You know, you go in the DMV, it's like, yeah. it's like, you're, like you're going to a rock concert. There's that many people there or something. It's like people are waiting outside the doors before they open and stuff. I'm like, who's playing in there, man? It's like... Uh, it's crazy yeah and again this last time that i went i thought i was being good by going literally when the doors open and there was already a line of people oh no you messed up greg (laughs) (laughs) you can't get there on time you gotta be there like an hour early man yeah i guess well it's like you said like what what are people waiting for in here i don't wait this long to go to an amusement park or something like that i mean it's you know it was like the eagles playing or something i mean it's like (laughs) It's like, I don't know. Yeah, you're like, at least I want it to be fun if I'm going to wait in long. Oh, man. 
Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. And then there's also that fear that you didn't fill out a document correctly because yeah. then you're just starting all over again, <laughs> especially for the passport because you can take your own picture and of course that is faster. But until that thing is back in your hand, at any point you could get the email that says, nope, your picture wasn't good enough and <laughs> you start back at the beginning of the line again. Wow. Well, let's transition real quick here about podcasting because one, I again, I enjoyed being on yours. I felt like I've been on a lot of podcasts as a guest and um, you're one of the more, you're, you're a person I felt like you felt seasoned. It felt seasoned to me. Like you asked really great questions. You're very engaged. I was like, oh, he's got the juice for this. You know, you know. so what got you into it? Uh, I mean, really just listening to other podcasts is the obvious start that I liked the medium. I like being able to have more in-depth conversations. You know, we've hit politics here a little bit mm-hmm. and I that's probably the first thing that spoke to me was the fact that, hey, could people have politicians on podcasts and you get to hear an actual conversation rather than the debacle that debates have become and all these other <laughs> sound bites and, and so on. So that was actually where I first recognized I, I hate to say the power of podcasts because that seems very salesy, but but just that it was for me, let's say, that I that I really liked what it was about. And then I went through all of the name the popular ones, of course. Yes, I listened to Joe Rogan quite a bit, yeah. depending on the guests that he'd have on. And once I realized there were so many different topics, the first thing that I really sought out was parenting. Uh, and Somewhat not surprisingly, there was more mom podcasts than there were dad podcasts. There are definitely dad podcasts. I just didn't find them first. And so that was my first inkling of maybe doing a show. And then also as a way to continue to connect with my friends and family, my first idea was actually to do a rotating co-host list with a couple of my friends and family. And as you'd imagine, it's not for everybody. So some were really into it, some were not. Uh, and the topics were were pretty well established. Again, like I said, parenting, I, I love talking about personal finance, which I'm sure you can tell. Health obviously is where we got connected uh, because I think there is definitely a, a connection in good health and also being able to improve yourself in these other facets. And then uh, home improvement is something else that that I've really been into. And again, you can't call a show suburban folk without talking about like owning a house and and things that go (laughs) along with that. So the first instance that I had with somebody that was not in my friend and family group was a very seasoned triathlete coach. And I I just had a great time talking to her. And I appreciate you saying that I sound seasoned because I definitely remember that one being really nervous of whether or not I could speak intelligently for an hour at least and (laughs) uh, lead the conversation. And of course, just like anything, you get better as the shows go on. And also that's when I really found more of what my niche was going to be for the show itself with those core topics and who I wanted to be able to bring on. Uh, The other that I would say is at its core, each one of the topics that I try to go through is A, assume that the listener is relatively new to the topic that we're talking about. So explain things and don't just dive into a lot of the jargon or details. Um, And... uh, 
I, actually, I forgot what my, my next point was going to be for it. Uh, oh, I, I just <laughs> remembered. Okay. Yeah. And B, and B is assume that people are trying to improve themselves in some way. Again, that's very obvious from a health standpoint and I think a finance standpoint, but maybe not as much so in the parenting world um, or maybe even potentially in the, the home improvement world. So uh, very much an emphasis on discipline and making sure that you are incrementally getting better each step of the way. So that's how I try to walk each episode through with my guests, uh, depending on what their uh, expertise is in. And then of course, yeah, if I have any questions that come to mind <laughs> that are hopefully insightful, that that help people uh, uh, learn more about the subject at hand, I'm, I'm going to ask those at any time. What So two things here. So what has been the most surprising part of hosting your own podcast and and what has been the most challenging part the most surprising part is actually meeting people and being a guest again i'm sure that sounds like a generic answer from me but it really is true um travel is something else that i try to focus on that's the one topic that is a passion of mine that let's be honest people don't have to travel i just really encourage people to. And I think experiences are worth pursuing over stuff. So I, I make it a, a core topic there. But pretty early on, I was able to have international guests and it was great. I get to ask them about their day-to-day -day culture. You're asking somebody that lives in a certain area where they would recommend to go for restaurants or things to go see. So once you get a chance to go there, uh, you're not just doing the touristy stuff. And I've been really encouraged by maintaining those contacts. Uh, you know, not everybody. And of course, in life, you you mix with some people better than others, but a really healthy portion of folks I've kept in touch with through social media and try to help wherever I can. So that's definitely been the most surprising and best part up to this point. The challenge, I guess, is what's the joke now? Everybody has a podcast, right? <laughs> so yeah. some of the challenge, of course, is engagement from listeners and seeing what else they would like to hear about or types of guests that they would like you to have on and and then finding the right people to do that. So that's that's always a challenge, I think, in general. And for me personally, I'm did not have any social media other than Facebook for myself until the podcast. So I was learning Twitter from scratch. I'm still learning Twitter and same thing with Instagram, especially I, I, just to show you how behind the times I was when I first got on Instagram and I'm like ready to type something in, I didn't realize you had to put a video or picture up as part of your post. And I'm like, really? Like I'm doing a podcast. I, I don't want to do yeah. visual things. So right. it took me a while to figure out how to make my Instagram somewhat interesting. Uh, and then one other thing that I think is worth noting for somebody that may be thinking about doing a podcast is attaching yourself to it. And what I mean by that is I purposefully set up suburban folk as a generic I'm a host for this time and maybe I'll have a certain other co-host. And I didn't really say that this is Greg Rotersheimer. This is his podcast because 
frankly, I wasn't that comfortable putting myself out there like that mm -hmm. at first. And the more I interacted with other people and figured out ways to do things, people want to know who they're listening to. They want to know yeah. about you. They want to know about your perspective. So if you're thinking about doing a show and you're nervous about having your name out there, try to get over that as quickly as you can <laughs> because – even the topics that I talk about, and I recognize it's a pretty wide array of topics. Obviously, the show is is, is any topic you know that that comes up, which oh, yeah. is my favorite kind. What is that unifying link? It's the host. The host, <laughs> so, correct. So, so, so that's that's my one tip. That that also was something I really struggled with at first, and it's been uh, much smoother sailing once you own own your voice, own your creativity. Well, I can certainly say that um, you do a great job. I mean, I've since I've gotten into this a while ago, I've met so many podcast hosts and a lot of people doing really great things. But I would say you're probably one of the more, I don't know how else to say it, seasoned voices out there, Greg. You have a real sense of confidence and clarity. And again, you ask great questions. I remember listening back to our episode my episode on your podcast. And I, I think I kept saying, those are good questions, Greg. And this is not a diss against anybody else. So like, I mean, I don't normally say that, um, but I think it just caught me off guard because uh, I could tell that you were very curious and you were asking questions based off of what I was telling you. And you were like, I want to dig deeper on this. And those are my favorite things. Absolute favorite podcast to be on. I, I agree. I mean, again, thank you for the compliment. And mm -hmm. I will go back to the host part of it. If, if people are listening to you on a regular basis, that means that they like your thought process and mm -hmm. where you're going to dig into things. And I'm sure you've had as well as I have guest requests where they'll even give you the questions they want you to ask. <laughs> and while I respect that, it, it does help me a little bit. If their questions don't fit into what I want to know for their area of expertise, I'm going to shift a little bit and and make it what I want it to be. And, yeah. And hopefully the guests, to your point, take that as a sign of interest in what they're doing, yeah. th that you're not just taking their stock questions and reading those and basically having them go through a sales pitch. Again, I, I think <laughs> if, dare I say, I... I think podcast listeners are probably pretty savvy and you're not, you're not downloading an hour long or however long conversation because you want to hear an infomercial. You, you want to get deeper into something than that. So uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of my response when I'll get suggested questions is thank you. I'll work it in when I send the outline back to you <laughs> and, and hopefully you recognize that it's there, but Hey, we're, we're going to get into other stuff as well. Uh, and, yeah. and again, hopefully that's appreciated. I always get that from like uh, a guest if they have representation from their PR person they'll uh the 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 PR person will send me well here's some things that so and so likes to talk about I'm like oh that's that's nice thank you and I just I don't use it I'm sorry like if anybody I just don't it's not it's like me if like if I had a teleprompter I wouldn't be good at that type of thing like I I don't like I have like no emotion when I read stuff I sound like, hey, this is what we're doing today. Like, it's terrible. Yeah. <laughs> like, I can work on it. I'm more like, I just got to feel the rhythm, the flow. I'm like, 
just just have a conversation. It's just we're chatting with each other, you know, uh, like. You be you, I'll be me. Okay. Yeah. Well, and gosh, hopefully I don't get in trouble for saying this, but something else that I have noticed for people that have a representative contacting me rather than them themselves, once I actually get to the person, they're way more relaxed than their <laughs> representation makes them out to be. And I will say, yeah. I want to say in every case, maybe there's one that I'm not thinking of. Once I make contact with that person who is to be the guest, I stay in contact with them and their yeah. person that they're using to outreach is, is out of the picture at that point. So I, I, I'm sure there is certain benefits, I guess, just volume of sending out requests and yeah. getting out there. But as far as the authenticity of the person and so on, I haven't come across an assistant that does their client justice in representing who they are as a person once I actually get them on. Yeah, no, I, I can, I've been very fortunate. I've had lots, lots of great PR people send me folks and they've been very good. And they, you know, they, they just kind of get out of the way after the initial thing. And then I just end up talking to the guests and then we end up becoming friends and stuff. And like, and I'll reach back out to them. Uh, I got a couple really good places, especially like uh, Kitcaster. I love the people at Kitcaster. They're awesome. And uh, Zach and the, the guys there, uh, they're amazing. They literally just like feed people to you and get out of the way. And uh, they're really nice people. So it's been enjoyable. But sometimes the questions do come and I just kind of chuckle when they yeah. come through. I'm like, uh, I hope they know that I'm not using these. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's exactly right. It's like as long as they communicate that back in some way. So, yeah. you know, it's not it's not awkward when they see what you're actually going to talk about. Yeah, when you bad. listen to this, you're not going to hear any of those questions just so you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll have to keep them in mind because uh, uh, actually I think where you and I even connected may have – yeah. Since shut down, so uh, I I could use a few more resources for oh yeah. For my next set I'm of gonna guests. start feeding you, Greg. I got some, actually. I have a few people I'm gonna send your way, um, pretty directly here, and then um, I'm gonna introduce you to the. I don't know if you're familiar with Kitcaster, but I'll introduce you to the folks there. They are amazing people, and um, it's a pretty high end exclusive deal. Like it's an invite only deal, so. Um, I love to invite invite people to it who I think are quality people, podcasters and podcast hosts or, or guests as well. You would totally fit their thing. So, oh, that's perfect. Yeah, I would appreciate that. Yeah, of course, no problem, man. Well, listen, I got to run, but hey, man, it's been a pleasure speaking to you, Greg. I always enjoy the conversation. Yeah, likewise. I really appreciate being on the show. Obviously, I know where to find you, so we will certainly be in touch. But this was a blast. Yeah, thanks, man. I'll be in touch. So let me ask you something. How do you get your news? Because I know you want to stay informed with what's going on here in the world. There's so much going on on a regular basis. And it's something that's been a problem for me personally. And I've been searching and searching and searching. And finally, I found a news source that I think all of my listeners are going to love. It's called The Donut, or The Dose of News Useful Today. The founder and CEO, Peter Nowak, is a good friend of mine. And when he turned me on to it, I was just blown away. Finally, a daily news source that delivers succinct and factual news about all the world's occurrences. And it's an easy access to finding things that you just want to get information about. And it also serves up a lot of positive news stories that you won't hear anywhere else. It's your daily reminder that there is good in the world, even if it doesn't feel like it sometimes. So get the donut, stay informed, 
It's 100% free. You can unsubscribe anytime. Visit thedonut.co or text DONUT to 66866 to sign up today. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dr. D's Social Network. Make sure you listen to future episodes. Also, please make sure to rate and review My Dad's Show on Apple Podcasts in the Rate and Review section. Thanks, everyone.